Good morning to everybody. Um, it's good to be back with y'all. Thank you to um, Pastor Matthew for covering Sunday School last week and our absence. And welcome the senior high class with us this morning. Thank y'all for being here. I know uh, I'm not as near as good a teacher as Mr. Craig, so but y'all just bear with us, okay? I'll do the best I can to keep up with him, okay? Um, this morning we are in John chapter 17. <clears throat> We're going to cover verses 6 through 19. So that's the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. I'm going to read these verses for us. This is the high priestly prayer. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all are mine, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them through your name. Those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, which the scriptures may be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified by the truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time this morning. Father, we pray uh, that your word uh, will uh, change us this morning. Father, we pray that you will uh, be our teacher this morning. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit will be here with us, ministering to us, Father, uh, opening our minds so that we can uh, be changed by your word for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So remember this, we talked about this prayer. Uh, This prayer has three parts. One, Jesus prays for himself. The second part, Jesus prays for his disciples. The third, he prays for all believers. And so we're here in this second part. Jesus is making intercession for his disciples. And it's important for us to understand that throughout this prayer, uh, Jesus speaks of the world. He says the world many times. Now, he's not primarily referring to this planet. I mean, to the planet Earth, right? Uh, But he's referring to the fallen world. That's what he's referring to when he says the world. He's referring to the fallen world. The the people who were lost in sin. um, The ones who were uh, enemies. uh, Therefore, uh, the enemies of God, the Creator. Jesus was from outside of the world. He is not here. He is not of this world. He... He has left his position of glory and he that he has enjoyed from all eternity uh, with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But he was outside of this world of sin. He is a foreigner to this world. 
But God had given him a, a number of followers who had been a part of the world, okay? That fallen world I'm talking about. But God has rescued them. And he has given them to Jesus. And so Jesus is praying for these people. And Jesus says to the Father here in verse, uh, the first half of verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Now he's talking specifically about the disciples here. In other words, what's, what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that, that or he's saying that he had made God's name obvious and clear to them. That's when he says, yeah, manifested your name to them. And he's made it obvious and clear who he was and who, who sent him and who God is. And it says, and who, and whom, and the question for us is, to whom did he manifest God's name? Well, it's, it's to the ones that the Father has given him, right? Namely, the disciples. He has invested uh, three years in these, these twelve. The second half of, of verse six, he says, they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, the, the disciples, okay, he says they were yours. They were God's because of why? Because he created them and he elected them to be disciples. Okay, that's the reason why, right? And and so God, now, and Jesus is acknowledging that the Father elected them in creation. Now he's given them to the Son. And what did Jesus mean when he says that they have kept your word? It's an interesting question, right? He says they have kept your word. Well, what really does he mean by that? We think that the next couple of verses help explain uh, this and where Jesus is coming from. Uh, verses uh, 7 and 8 says, Now they have known that all the things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So when Jesus said that they have kept your word, okay, when he said that, he's not saying that they have obeyed everything of the law. Okay, he's not saying that they had obeyed every word of the Mosaic law or that they had kept all the commandments. That's not what he's saying. Okay, um, Dr. Sproul said, I believe Jesus used the phrase your word as a shorthand expression for the gospel. Okay, they they had not obeyed the entire law. We obviously we know that, but they had embraced the essential truths. Right? What do we know about the disciples? Well, they had come uh, to see Jesus as the Messiah, as Jesus had presented Himself. He was sent by God, and they put his their faith in Him. So here, what Jesus is doing, Jesus is affirming that they have saving faith. Okay, these disciples that the Father has given him, who has elected and has given them. And this relationship, the way that the disciples got to this point, right, is really no difference in the end than the, than the way, than what God does with us, is it? It's really no different, right? If, if you are in Christ, if you are saved, it is because God has done what? He has taken you out of the world. Right, he's called you out of the world and he's given you to Christ if you are a believer. That's what happens. And so Christ has then manifested his word to me, right? And the gospel is now in our hearts. So what we see happening with the disciples is essentially the same thing that happens with me and you, right? That's how we are saved. Jesus continues uh, in his prayer. 
And he asks that the work that has been started will be brought to completion. Jesus says in verses 9 through 11, he says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. Remember what he's talking about when he says the world. He's talking about everybody else, right? He's, he's talking about a fallen world. I do not pray for the world, but I pray for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. And all mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. So here, this, this, uh, that, that, that final request, he says that Jesus, that, that God would, would keep the disciples, right? Keep them through his name is basically the essence of what Jesus is praying for. And Jesus says something, right? He says, um, I am no longer in the world. That's what he says. Well, he's, he's in the world, right? So sure, okay, it was, it was happening. So sure was Jesus' death and departure um, back to the Father. It was so sure that Jesus treated it as it has already happened. It is as good as done. I am gone already. It is that sure. What is about to happen, the events of the next uh, following weeks are so sure. Jesus is like, I'm already gone. I am no longer here. It is, it is going to happen. And so here he, he prays for the disciples because now he knows they have to face the world's temptation and hatred without him. They're about to be alone. They're about to alone in this world. He's about to leave them. This three-year relationship, he is about to leave him. So he's praying for them. He prays for uh, their eternal security. He's praying to the God. He's praying to his Father. Now, during our last lesson, so this was three weeks ago, right? We had a two-week break. We had a guest speaker, and then Matthew covered last week. But three weeks ago, I know for your teenagers, you weren't here, but for those of you who were, we looked at one of the disagreements, right, over one of the five points of Calvinism. Okay, we looked at, who remembers from three weeks ago? Looked at one. We looked at limited atonement. Remember, we discussed limited atonement in detail. Okay, what it means. Um, and the, the, we talked a little bit about the disagreements and why some people don't, or they reject that uh, doctrine. Well, almost as hotly debated as limited atonement is the P in TULIP. Okay, the P stands for perseverance of the saints, right? There are um, some Christians who believe all of the other four. They'll even take the L, but they ignore the fifth. They keep they drop off the fifth. They disagree with the perseverance of the saints. And what is the perseverance of the saints? Right, it's you cannot lose your salvation. That's basically what that means, right? Well, if you're saved, you're always saved. Okay, that's basically what it means. Well, there are many believers who believe that one can lose their salvation. That is possible. That you can truly be saved and also truly lose your salvation or fall away. Now, the reform position that we hold to, this church holds to, is that if you have salvation, you can never lose it. 
And if you seemingly lose it, then you never had it. Okay, that's the reformed position on salvation. Okay, if, if you have it, you can never lose it. And if you seemingly lose it, then you never had it. In, in John's first letter, his epistle, he writes about a group that left the church, remember? First uh, John 2.19, he says, they went out from us, right? But they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. John understands this, right? A group went out, well, did they lose the salvation? No, he's saying they never were with us to start with, right? These, these are an example of, of people who were thought to be in the church, to be members, the visible church, right? Their name was on a, roster, on a roll, right? But they were not true members of the church. Now this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, this, this, the, the, the reformed confidence, I think is the way Dr. Sproul described it, the reformed confidence about the perseverance of the saints re- relies completely and totally on the mercies of God. Okay, and the, the, the priesthood of Christ who is now in heaven making intercession for us, just like Jesus is in a, in a real way, Jesus is making intercession for his disciples. He's praying for them. We know that because Jesus is in heaven with his Father today, he is there making intercession for us as our great High Priest. He is there. He is interceding with the Father on our behalf, and we learn that from Romans eight. In this is not a new thing. Okay, this is not a new idea here in the Gospel of John. If you remember, back in chapter 10, uh, Jesus said about uh, those who the Father have given them, He says, I give them eternal life. He says, and they will never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. What do you hear there when you hear Jesus' words in 10? This, this, the, the doctrine of election, Jesus is, is talking about it. It is clearly what those that are His have been given to Him by His Father. And what does He says? And those that the Father has given me, no one can snatch them out of my hand. They're in my hands. Once they're in my hands, no one can take them out. They can't even take themselves out. That's how sure it is. Okay? And of course, we, when, you, when, you think, when you hear perseverance of the saints... Show me that in the Bible. Show me where you find that phrase. You will not find that phrase in the Bible, right? Perseverance of the saints. What do we see in the Bible? Well, we see some words that Jesus is using here, right? It's we see this idea of keeping. Okay, we see this, this idea of, of keeping. Uh, to, be, to be kept... Okay, is to be protected or to be preserved. Remember the great uh, priestly blessing in the Old Testament. Uh, we find in number six, what well, begins with these words. And, and, and you all remember these words, right? And the Lord bless you and keep you. Right? The Lord bless you and keep you. So this idea of keeping is not a new thing either. We see it throughout the Bible. Those, those who are saved, okay, the elected, are kept. They're not kept just for today. They're kept forever. 
right? Not and, and, and they are kept forever, not by their own power, but by the very power of God Himself. They are kept. So it is it's not surprising here when we see or when we hear, we listen into Jesus praying, Father, keep them through your name, the ones that you have given me. Keep them through your name. He says that in verse 11. Father, keep them through your name, those whom you have given me. Okay, so this, this doc, these doctrines of unconditional election, of the limited or definite atonement, of the irresistible grace, of perseverance of the saints. We see it throughout Jesus' ministry. Now, this petition, let me, let me talk about this petition here in verse 11 first. It says, it says, Father, keep them through your name, those whom you have given me. I'll just pearl pointed out this petition can be read in a couple of ways. One way it can be read is this. Keep them through the power of your name. That's one way you can... Uh, you can read it. Keep them through the power of your name. There's another way you can read this is keep them in your name. And Dr. Sproul says, I prefer this way. I prefer this way of reading it. If I, if I am in God's name, then I am numbered among the redeemed. Okay, if I am in God's name. Now on... This night, particularly, let's go back to where we are, right, in the timeline. Okay, this is the night before the crucifixion, right? That's where we are in the timeline. Jesus is praying. He prayed first for himself. Now he's praying for the disciples. Next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about his prayer for us, for all believers. But on this particular night, okay, the disciples, this band of brothers who had been so close with Jesus for three years, they're about to face the greatest crisis of their life. Okay? Um, they, they, what's about to happen that they don't even really fully understand? Jesus knows. He knows what's about to happen. That's why he's praying what he's praying, right? And so on the eve of this crisis that is about to happen in their lives, Jesus prays to his Father, keep them, Father. Father, keep them. Don't release them. Don't, don't let them go. Hold on to them, Father. Hold on to them. Now that, that's a comforting thing, isn't it? Is that a comforting prayer? You bet it is. That is an extremely comforting prayer because who? He's, definitely, he's praying for the disciples, but he's also asking the Father, Father, don't let them go. Don't let them go. It's about to get hard. Don't let them go. Hold on to them. In an earlier chapter, I didn't go back and look at when it was, we used an illustration. And, and it's worth repeating here because we're talking about a similar thing. And the illustration was this, and you may remember if you've been in this class for the whole time. Uh, we talked about a father and a son walking on a dangerous cliff, beside a cliff, right? A dangerous, perilous situation. And you can just imagine, uh, those of you, especially if you have sons, I can imagine if it was me, right? Walking with one or both of my sons. Walking next to a dangerous situation. And uh, the danger is such that as they're traversing this area, the father does what? He grabs onto the child's hand. And he holds onto the child's hand, right? 
Why? Well, if if the boy's safety, okay, if if his safety depends on his own strength to hold on to his father's hand, then how how safe do you think he's going to be? It could be, hey, it could be give or take, right? We don't know, right? We're depending on the child to hold on to the father, so he he would probably be in danger, but. But since he's small, okay, because he is small, it would be easy for this small child to lose the grip, right? And to maybe fall into a dangerous situation. What's, what keeps the child safe here? Is it the child's ability to hold on to the father? No. It's the father's ability to hold on to the child. That's what creates the safe situation, Right? It's, it's, it's not the child who's keeping himself safe. It's the father's grip on the child's hand that's keeping him safe. Now that picture, okay, if you've been in a situation like that, you know, right? If, if I can't say that I've ever been in a situation exactly like that, but I've been in large crowds, right, with kids, you know, as they're, as they're smaller, what do you find your parents doing? You're holding on to those kids, right? You're holding on to them. They're not holding on to you because, you know, kids, who knows, right? The world's, the world's an adventure, right? Nobody's out to get me. The world's safe, right? That's what we all believe at some point, right? Well, you know better. The world's dangerous. So what are we parents doing? We're holding on to these kids. We're holding on to them. Right? To keep them safe. That's what we that's what we do, right? We want to keep them safe. And so that imagery, when you think about that, when you think about this father holding on to the child's hand, keeping them safe, that is in essence, in all in a very real way, that is what Jesus is asking the Father to do for these disciples. Father, they're yours. He's asking the Father. Don't let go of them. Keep your grip on these disciples. That's a comforting prayer, isn't it? Extremely comforting prayer. Jesus also asked the Father that they may be one as we are. Father, may they be one as we are. Now, a lot of things come to my mind when I when I read that verse, right? A lot of things come to my mind. What is what is he getting at? What is he getting at? What, do they mean be one as we are one? Well, what we do know is that uh, this particular verse is often uh, misinterpreted. Uh, this particular uh, verse, these words of Jesus have been used many times as a proof text for the ecumenical movement. Those of that uh, persuasion would say that this prayer of Jesus will not be answered until all the church is united as one. Okay, with no divisions in the church. That's what a lot of people would believe. that When Jesus is asking this, this won't be achieved until all churches are one. Now, and I'll quote Dr. Sproul here, and I agree with him. He says, I am sure that God has grieved by all of our disunity. Do we have disunity in the church? Yes. 
Because I am sure that God is grieved by all of our disunity. But I don't think that is what Jesus has in mind here. In reality, this prayer has already been answered. Because in a very real way, everyone who is in Christ is in union with Him. If you are in Christ, you are in union with Him. And therefore we have union what? With each other. Blessed be the tide that binds. Right? We have union with one another in a very real way. The, the Apostles' Creed, which we recite every Sunday morning, mentions what? The communion of the saints. The communion of the saints. And that's real. Okay? The communion of the saints transcends every boundary. It transcends every denomination that believes the true word of God. Right? It transcends all those things. We have brothers and sisters whom with we disagree on some things. Right? We talked about reform. There's a lot of people who disagree with us. We're in the minority, remember that. In the reform camp, we are not the majority. We are the minority. So we have a lot of brothers and sisters who we will be with forever and eternity whom we don't agree with on some doctrinal matters. But nevertheless, we are still with them. There is a spiritual unity among all the saints, all of God's people, even the ones who are already gone. Okay, there is a very real way that we are with each other, just as the Father is with the Son. Now, our unity, that that kind of unity, is not a result of anything we've done. Right? That is not a result of our own actions. It is the, that unity is a result of the work of the Holy Spirit through salvation. All right? That is, we all, every believer has the Holy Spirit as a down payment, right? In a very real way, and we are bound to one another. In a very real sense. So in a very real sense we are one as they are. Jesus Jesus goes on. Verse 12. He says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now, Jesus just asked the Father to keep His disciples, didn't He? Yes. But here He reveals that He had been keeping them while He was in the world. Right? Jesus' own words. I have been, while I'm with them, I've been the one that's been keeping them. And then He adds, but not all of them were kept. Right? One was lost. The son of perdition. We know Judas. He is lost. Now when you think about, because Jesus, remember in the timeline back, Judas has already left. He's out doing his thing, right? What you go do, go do it quickly. Remember, what he's already been dismissed. Can, in the context of what we're studying here, right? We're talking about perseverance of the saints. Can what happened to Judas be used as evidence that someone can lose their faith. And then later, oh sorry, excuse me, that someone can come to faith, right? Then lose it and end up in destruction. Is that Can that be? Can you make those two connections? I see some shaking heads. No, you cannot. Right? Why? Because Judas was never saved. Okay? Judas was never saved. Judas was never born again. 
Judas didn't have salvation and then lose it. Okay, remember, very early in, or not very early, back in John 6, earlier in the ministry, remember, Jesus referred to Judas as the devil, as a devil. Remember this, right? Don't, don't forget about this, right? This is John 6, 70. This is when, if you remember, Jesus had one of those hard sayings, right? It was a difficult saying, and then many people questioned him. He was talking about eating his flesh and all those things, and it was hard, right? You remember, a lot of people were like, we can't even handle what you're saying, Jesus, right? And a lot of people left, you remember? A lot of people left him and didn't walk with him anymore, right? That's the, that's, and, then, and then Jesus basically says, he looks at the 12, he says, okay, now you want to leave too? Remember that? That's what Jesus, y'all ready to leave? And then, and so it's in that context that Jesus said, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one is a devil? Hmm. He was, Judas was numbered among the 12 only to fulfill a role that was prophesied for him. Okay, Psalm 41, 9. This is a this is a Psalm of David. Even even this is Psalm forty one nine. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread. When did Judas get dismissed? After partaking of the Lord's supper, right? He, he dipped the cup in the bread. He ate the bread. He drank the cup. Then he was dismissed, right? Psalm forty one nine says, "Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me." One of the band of brothers. He was there for a purpose. He was his role was prophesied for him. So, no, to answer this question, what happened to Judas cannot be used as a text to say one can lose their salvation because he never was saved. And Doctor Spruill said, he, I, heard, "I once heard a a speaker say that the Bible doesn't speak harshly of Judas, and neither should we." He says. And this is his words. I can't think of any more harsh a description of a man than son of perdition. <clears throat> Jesus' words. Son of perdition. Can you think of a worse thing to call somebody? Well, what's perdition mean, right? Perdition refers to the final eschatological damnation that comes at the hands of God. That is the final judgment and wrath of God. His righteous wrath. And Jesus did what? He attached that to the name of Judas. So, that's a serious thing. Son of perdition is not a compliment, is it? Jesus goes on in verse, verses 13 and 14. He says, But now I, have come, I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Unlike you and me, Jesus was never of the world, right? Every one of us was born in this fallen world. We were born in sin at one time. But praise God, if you're here today, you've made a profession of faith, you're, uh, uh, you are saved, right? Then you are no longer of the world, like he's referring to. Now, he says we're not of the world, but we still live here, don't we? We still live in the world, but we're no longer a part of it. We're not part 
of this godless system. And so believers have a mixed citizenship, don't we? We have a mixed citizenship. We, God's called us out of this world. He says, you're not, you're not, you, you were, you were there. I called you out of it. I saved you. You're mine now. You're citizens of heaven, not citizens of this world. And so you have a mixed citizenship. So guess what? The world hates us. Right? Mixed citizenship brings hatred from the world. But it was Jesus' prayer that we would have his joy. Remember we talked about that as his legacy, right? That we would have his joy. Verse 15 says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Hmm. So Jesus didn't ask that they would experience some measure of safety and isolation. He didn't ask that, did he? No. He didn't ask that they would be removed from the fight. Don't take, he didn't say, okay, I saved them. I'm going to take care of them. Take them out of the fight. They're going to have it easy for the rest of their life. No, he didn't do that. He says, don't take them out of the world. Martin Luther once said that Christianity is a profane faith. Christianity is a profane faith. The word profane literally means out of the temple. Okay, literally that's what the word means, profane. Out of the temple. What did Luther mean when he said that? Luther, Luther meant that the church is not to spend all of its time gathered together in a holy huddle basking in the glory of God. It never was intended to be that way. Yes, there are times of fellowship, specifically on the Lord's Day. We gather here, right, for worship and fellowship and it is sweet, right? It is good. But then the next day, where do we go? We're back out in the world. We don't come back here and hang out together all week long, all the time, right? Tomorrow, we'll be in the world. We'll be back in the world. And we have that mixed citizenship. We have to be different in the world because of who you are. If you look just like the world, <coughs> there may be an issue, right? We're called to be different. From the, we're called out from the world. We're called to bear witness to the world. And what, does, what did Jesus say? They hated me, they're going to hate you. But Jesus prayed. He prayed that the Father would protect His disciples as they went out and they went forth to share His name. And He said they wanted to protect Him from the evil one. He's talking about Satan himself, right? Now, Praise the Lord that, that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has sealed the defeat of Satan. It is done. He is a defeated foe because of the work of Christ in uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection. He's done. Okay, he is, no, he is a defeated foe, but he's still out there, right? He is still on the loose. He's still trying to wreak havoc. And the one thing, and Satan does know, he's not omniscient, right? He doesn't know all but he knows if you're a believer, you know one thing he knows? He knows he can't have you if you're a believer. I can't have you. You're not mine. But guess what I'm going to try to do? What is Satan's tactic to a believer? I want to ruin your witness. I want to take your witness from you. I can't take your salvation. He knows that. You're sealed. But I will do everything I can to ruin your witness. 
That's Satan's biggest attack on believers. Verses 16 through 17 says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. They were in the world, right? Just like you and I were in the world, but now they're not. He's called them out. They're to be different. He says, what he like? He says, they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I've called you out. You are mine. You are different. And just um, this, 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 um, Paul writes, and we're going to talk about, because uh, he mentions, uh, Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, for this is the will of God for your sanctification. Right? That's the, that's the process. Right? How does, what is sanctification? What is it? How does it happen? Well, primarily it happens through the Word of God. Paul put it another way in Romans 12. He says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Renewing your mind. Right? How does that happen? Through the Word of God. How are you sanctified? Through the Word of God. In other words, right? We are brought to greater holiness, greater godliness by doctrine, right? By the Word of God, by renewing our minds. Uh, Dr. Sproul said, uh, I hardly hear a day that goes by that I don't hear someone say, doctrine doesn't matter. What matters is relationships. You ever heard anybody say that? Doctrine doesn't matter. They'll say that a lot about us reform folk, right? Because they say our doctrine doesn't matter. Well, if doctrine doesn't matter, then truth doesn't matter. And if truth doesn't matter, then our sanctification doesn't matter. Because sanctification doesn't come through relationships, right? Sanctification comes through the Word of God. It comes into our lives. It renews our minds. It changes the way we think. Right? It changes our lives. And then that truth will define those godly relationships. Right? And you consider relationships with the world, with people. One thing we can always ask, does it, 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 if, you're, if it's a close relationship, if you're pursuing it, does the relationship enhance? Does it, does, it, does it improve upon your relationship with God? Does it help? Does it bring you closer to the, to the Word? Does it bring it closer to God? Is that, is that a, a, a fruitful relationship? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? Right? Doctrine does matter. And we can't have godly relationships without being in the truth. We cannot have it. He concludes his prayer uh, for his disciples with these words. Verses 18 through 19. He says, As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified by the truth. Now, when we hear this, uh, it, 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 if, if, I were to, it, if we were to talk to each other in conversation and I were to tell you, well, I'm sanctifying myself, what would you think about that? Really? I look at you kind of funny, right? Well, that's exactly what Jesus just said about Himself. He says He is sanctifying Himself. What does that mean? What does that mean here? What does Jesus mean here? We have to understand what Jesus is saying in light of the Old Testament, right? The language he uses here goes back to, is hearkening back to the Old Testament and to the Day of Atonement. What happened on the Day of Atonement? The priests had to do what? They had to be ritually cleansed before they could offer the sacrifice. 
Um, the animals themselves had to be consecrated right before they could be used. In other words, what? The priest and the sacrifices had to be set apart. Right? That's what they had to happen. Well, the New Testament shows us that Christ is our great high priest. But he's different from all the others, right? Because in addition to being the great high priest, he's also the sacrifice. He's both. Right? He's both. And so here in the upper room, our Savior, our great high priest, was sanctifying himself. He was setting himself apart for the work that was before him. Finally, he, I'll, I'll make this quick because the bell's rung. He prayed that disciples would be sanctified by the truth. Lies and falsehood corrupt us. Okay, when we entertain them with our own hearts, when we entertain lies, we entertain it will corrupt our soul. The fall of the human race began with a lie, right? A corruption of the truth. Did God really say? The only thing that can rescue us from ourselves, okay, because that's in a fallen world, we are our, our worst enemy, right? The only thing that can rescue us from ourselves is a true and a right understanding of God and who He is and of Christ and the work of Christ on the cross. That true understanding of the gospel is the only answer to our hopeless condition. And here, in the middle of what's about to happen, as Jesus is approaching the cross, He prays that His disciples, these band of brothers, would be men of truth. People of the truth. Bell is rung, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for our time. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Father, it is living and breathing and active. So Father, we ask that You use Your Word today. Uh, to change our hearts, Father, to make us more like Christ. Father, as we leave our time of study, Father, now as we go into a time of worship, Father, thank you for this time that you set apart in our week. We can gather in corporate worship, Father, and as our pastor calls us to worship this morning, Father, we pray that whatever may be distracting us, Father, we pray that you will just remove it from our thinking, that we can enjoy being with you in a very real way, gathered together with the saints in heaven and around the world. We pray that our worship this morning will be acceptable before you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.